Friends, welcome back to another episode. We just keep on rolling. Another episode of the What If Project podcast. Uh, My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 39. And I think you picked a really good day. This is a good day, a good day to drop by. Uh, We just finished up a new series uh, that was called God's Not Mad. And that was the series that we did for the season of Lent. And we talked about the idea, uh, you guessed it, that God's not mad. He's not an angry bully in the sky waiting to shoot people with lightning bolts when they do something wrong. Um, We talked all about the love of God, the grace of God, the inclusiveness of God. And uh, it was a really good time. We addressed some big topics. We touched down a little bit on the book of Revelation in the Bible. Uh, We talked about um, the idea of hell. We talked about a lot of stuff. Um, And I really enjoyed it. Um, So if you missed an episode, you missed all of the episodes, whatever, uh, go back, give them a listen. I think they will encourage you, inspire you, and bless you in some way. But today's a new day. It's a new week, a new day, heading into new things. Uh, Today we're going to hear from a guest, and I'll tell you about him in just a few minutes. Uh, But we have a, a special guest who's going to be joining us on the podcast today that I'm super excited to introduce you to. Um, also next week we'll go into a shorter three part series that I'm calling thoughts from the doctor, uh, thoughts from the doctor. So, uh, if you've been around for a little bit, you know that I just successfully defended my dissertation that I am still tweaking, um, and writing before May 30th is when the final draft is due, but I flew up to New York. Um, I presented it to a small board of people at my school They asked me some questions. I, quote, defended the dissertation successfully. Um, They said that um, they're going to give me my degree. Uh, So I am now Dr. Glenn Siepert. So a big deal for me. It's been a very long uh, journey. So uh, thoughts from the doctor. It's going to be a three-part series. Um, In part one, I'm going to tell you uh, why I got my doctorate? Like so that's a question a lot of people ask. It's like, why would you want to get your doctorate? Like, what's the point? Uh, the second week will be uh, the top three things that I learned in the classroom uh, throughout the doctoral program. It was a three-year program, so I guess I'll share with you one thing a year, even though some of them happen in the same year. But we'll just go with one thing a year. And uh, then thirdly, the third week, I'm going to share with you. I know where I, kind of what's next. Like, where do I feel like um, the spirit is leading? Um, where do I feel like this is maybe going? Um, what exactly um, am I doing with my life? Uh, so that'll be in week three. Uh, so, a three part series um, thoughts from the doctor coming up starting next week. And then we'll head into something else after that and something else after that. And it's all on the calendar. So, I'm excited because things are planned out. Um, all the way through the fall, and so uh, some exciting things and topics and people will be coming onto the podcast soon. But today is, uh, like I said, episode 39, and we have a very special guest coming on today. His name is uh, Brandon Robertson. Uh, so Brandon Robertson is a pastor out in um, San Diego, California, and uh, he wrote a book called True Inclusion. And uh, I came across his book at the uh, Wild Goose Festival last July, and he talks about being an inclusive uh, church, what it looks like to be an inclusive human being. 
Uh, we often think of inclusion around the topic of LGBTQ, and he touches on that. We, we touch on that heavily um, in the episode. Uh, but really, he says to be a truly inclusive human being means that you're inclusive. Um, you include everybody in your life, um, in your church. Um, it's not just about um, being inclusive of one particular type of person, but being inclusive of everybody, regardless of their sexuality, uh, their gender, their race, uh, their background, their current life, whatever it is that you know it might be that we typically um, use to build up walls and push people away. Uh, so walls do not exist in any form um, in the inclusive life and in the inclusive church. And I think that Brandon brings a really unique perspective to this topic because he's actually a gay pastor. And so he shares with us a little bit about that um, as well. And it's just a really, just an amazing conversation I had with him. Um, I will share the link to the book, to his church, uh, to his website, all that kind of stuff um, in the show notes. He has a new book that just came out as well uh, that you can go and look at. And um, just a really great guy. And uh, I'm excited to introduce him to you. Uh, special music today is from a guy. Um, his stage name is 85. And uh, I work with him. And uh, he is a good friend. He is a good man. He's doing good things in the world. Uh, so I will put links to his stuff in the show notes as well. And you can go and uh, check him out. So all of that to say, uh, this is episode number 39. And I'm calling it Brandon Robertson Talks to Us About Being a Gay Pastor and what it looks like to be a truly inclusive human being. Uh, It's good to see you here. Much love to you, my friends, and uh, enjoy the show. everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by my new friend, uh, Pastor Brandon Robertson. And Brandon is the lead pastor of Mission Gathering Christian Church in San Diego, California. He's the author of a book called True Inclusion, Creating Communities of Radical Embrace, which is going to be the kind of the topic of our chat today. And uh, Brandon, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So uh, just to give our, our listeners some context, I, I came across Brandon's work at the uh, Wild Goose Festival this past July. And uh, as I found myself saying a lot over the past year, a friend of Wild Goose is a friend of, of mine. So I don't know if you've had the same experience, Brandon, but like I feel like I really never heard of Wild Goose until about maybe two years ago. And then I went last year. And now everybody I talk to seems like they know what it is. I don't know if it's just because I'm in North Carolina or what the situation is, but I run into a lot of people who uh, we have a connection there. Yeah, I, I found Wild Goose while I was a student at Moody Bible Institute Conservative School, and I started sneaking out. I've been going for seven years now, and it's definitely, uh, it's, that, it's the family reunion once a year. It's an amazing place. It really is. I had a professor in school who is a little bit more progressive in his thinking. And I pulled him aside one day and I'm like, where do I get more of people like you? <laughs> and he was like, oh, you need to go to Wild Goose. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And there I went. Yeah. So, uh, But hey, if you could, uh, maybe for people who aren't as familiar with you, if you could just catch up us uh, up to speed on who you are, a little bit about your background, maybe what brought you to where you are today, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, totally. Um, I, well, today I'll start with, um, as you said, I'm the lead pastor of a progressive, inclusive Christian church out here in San Diego, California called Mission Gathering. And um, along with that, I get to do a lot of really fun work, um, work primarily within the evangelical community, working to help bridge the divide between the LGBT community and the evangelical community. And then uh, I do a lot of writing and speaking. So uh, that's what I do today. But I got here basically through this long convoluted journey from being a fundamentalist Baptist kid growing up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, went off to Bible college at a school called Moody Bible Institute. And while I was there, um, I did what you're doing. I started a podcast, actually, and I started interviewing people that I wasn't necessarily supposed to interview, uh, people that had different, more broader perspectives on faith than what I had grown up with and what I had believed in. And what I discovered really quickly uh, as I was interviewing these people was that they seemed to have a faith that reflected more of Jesus, the Jesus I found in the Gospels, than the fear-based religion that I was a part of and that I was advocating for. And so over the four years that I was in Bible college, um, I had, I was going to say a slow but steady, but actually it was pretty radical and quick, a deconstruction of my faith by talking to people again, like Brian McLaren and Mm. by sneaking off to the Wild Goose Festival and hanging out with Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo and these people that had evangelical credential, but again, weren't afraid to ask questions, weren't afraid to cross the boundaries if they thought love compelled them to do so. Um, And also during that time, the other important stream of my life was uh, I had struggled with my sexuality. And so in Bible college, I, as I was deconstructing my faith, I was also wrestling with what it meant to be attracted to, to guys and how I could square that with my calling to be a pastor and my conservative Christian faith. Um, over the course of my four years at Moody, uh, they threatened to kick me out six times, both for the heresy of my podcast and uh, and this sexuality question. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was intense. And hmm. uh, in order to graduate, they basically they required me to do a year of um, a mild version of conversion therapy. So I I did that for my senior year at Moody, uh, tried to literally pray away the gay. And when I graduated Moody, um, by the grace of God, I I found this whole Christian thing just didn't seem to be worth it. It was so rooted in fear. It was so rooted in opposing the other, whoever our other was. Mm. And I didn't know if I wanted to give my life to be a part of that kind of institution. Yeah. Um, and so long story short, I spent a few years uh, doing some political activism in DC, came out as uh, LGBT um, and started kind of shaping a public career around advocating for LGBT inclusion. Um, and then decided I needed to see if I could actually reconnect with my faith. So I went off to seminary, um, went to Isla School of Theology in Denver, which is an amazing school, um, progressive, very interfaith, even though it's United Methodist. And so in that context, I just really found uh, a love again of God and Christianity and also um, the role of religion in helping to renew and redeem the world. And so graduated from there and ended up here in San Diego being a pastor. So wow, it's quite a journey. Yeah, it's been a wild one. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I, 
I was thinking about, you know, while you were saying about um, your experience at Moody, um, do you feel like as, as difficult and um, hard as I'm, I'm, I can imagine how that was, do you feel like that experience uh, shaped you into helping you realize the need for what you do today in the world? Like the need that people have who are going through the things that you went through, but maybe find themselves like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. So um, two things came out of my Moody experience that I'm really grateful for. One, um, despite the negative experience I had, I also, like it sounds like you've had, I had professors and people that came into my life that kind of were the Nicodemuses that came under the cover of dark mm -hmm. and said that there is a better way to do this. So like, yeah. don't give up. Um, and so I really, even to this day, despite how corrupt evangelicalism is, and I don't identify as an evangelical anymore, but I deeply love and um, feel almost a calling to be a missionary to the evangelical community to help not even bring them towards progressive theology, but help them to get through some of the, the racism and sexism and homophobia that, that I think is a really bad witness to their theology. Yeah. Um, and the other side of that is that um, coming from this Bible college environment, um, I really, I really have a passion now also for making returning to those environments and um, making sure that the students that are there know that there's a better way of being Christian. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of that whole missionary effort thing now. Um, and I, I definitely feel like a missionary to that world. That's really cool. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So your book, uh, True Inclusion, um, I wanted to start off by uh, maybe sharing a story with you and then getting your reaction to it, because I think it'll be a good springboard uh, for us to jump from. But, and to be honest with you, as I was reading your book, this story was like replaying in the back of my mind the whole time. So I was kind of reading your book through the lens of this uh, situation that happened in my life. Uh, but back in the day, I was 26 years old. And uh, I was the lead pastor of a really old uh, Dutch Reformed church, which I always say is like immediate proof that God has an unrelenting sense of humor. Because, you know, me, <laughs> even back then, like I was a guy who thought a little bit different, but, you know, I was in this super theologically conservative church. And uh, outside of the church hung this big banner that we had. And it was a gray banner, uh, green writing, and it said loud and clear, come as you are, uh, everyone is welcome. And so going into my role, now that banner was out there even while I was interviewing for the position. So going into the role, like I made this assumption that that sign was accurate. You know, everybody belonged regardless of their age, their gender, their sexuality, et cetera. And so even in the interview process, like I commented on it a couple of times and the search committee said things like, oh yeah, we're open to everybody. You know, everybody's welcome here. We love everybody, all that kind of stuff. So fast forward a few months later, still in my first year. And uh, it was communion Sunday and I was in my office and an elder pulled me aside and he, he came up to me. So I'll never forget this. He says, uh, today is a, a sacred day. You know, we're celebrating the sacrament of communion. And he said, what will you do if a gay couple comes into our church and wants to take communion? He said, and what will you do if someone who's not accepted Jesus as their Lord and savior wants to come to the table? Because we do have some of those people in our church. So my response uh, probably not what he was looking for. And so stuff like this sometimes got me in trouble. But I said something like, well, you know, I'd probably give them something to eat like the Lord would have done. And he looked at me and I'll never forget it. He says, that's the wrong answer. He said, the gay couple isn't welcome at the table. 
until they stop being gay. And the non-believer is not welcome until they put their faith in Jesus. And it was in that moment that it became like really clear to me that although everyone was, quote, welcome uh, to step foot on the property, to sit in a pew, to walk through the door, to listen to a sermon, not everyone was welcome to be included in our church family. And uh, not everybody was welcome to be affirmed, even as a human being, you know, who's loved and accepted by God just as they are. So not everyone really belonged. And so I'm wondering, in the book, you talk a lot about like how you've done consulting with churches that are looking to become more inclusive, kind of explore what that means. Do you find that like this sort of scenario is the case in a lot of churches today? Like do churches think that just because they have a mission statement that says everyone is welcome, that automatically that labels them as an inclusive, safe kind of church? And assuming that's not really the best example of what being inclusive is, like what would you say, what does it look like to be an inclusive human being or an inclusive church? Yeah, totally. I think your experience, thank you for sharing it, is yeah. uh, is what is most common in American Christianity today. Mm. Um, and it's primarily, as I try to say in the book, it's a theological problem. I, I think our, our what we would call today in Orthodox traditional theology falls drastically short of how Jesus embodied inclusion. Um, mm. And I came from a Reformed background. Um, I used to be a a big neo-reformed guy back in the day and you would have well, we responded would, in the same way. We would have gotten along as, great then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a Mark Driscoll, John Piper guy. That was my oh, thing. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> and I would have responded in the same way as your elder at some point uh, in my theological journey, believing that um, if you fundamentally believe, and this is what so much Christianity believes, that God has chosen some people to be in and God either chose some people to be out or is okay that some people are outside of the kingdom of salvation, of his loving embrace. Um, that's going to change the way you interact in the world, the way you interact with people. What I see in Jesus and throughout the entire New Testament and the trajectory of scripture is this call towards uh it starts with a God who is already radically inclusive of all people, but is slowly trying to bring humanity along to being inclusive. And um, as we get to the New Testament, we see these radical things like the Jewish community who throughout all of their laws in the Hebrew Bible are told to stay separate from Gentiles, from unclean people, from people of other ethnic backgrounds uh, and religious backgrounds. All of a sudden, we find in the New Testament, God, literally in the voice of God telling Peter, actually, that was good for a time, but my real intent, my real heart all along was to declare all things clean, all people clean. There are no unclean people. Mm. And if that's the trajectory of the Christian faith, um, then that means that when we say all people are included, we have to believe that God is big enough, God is loving enough, God is gracious enough, God is working in profound and mysterious, powerful ways to draw all people into God's loving embrace. Um, and so your story reminds me of why we do what we do at Mission Gathering every Sunday, which is when I walk to the communion table, I say, first and foremost, no matter who you are, where you come from, what you believe, what you've done, you're welcome to this table because this isn't our table. It's not our denomination's table. This is God's table and God has invited all of us to come together here and receive. And it's just the most mind blowing thing, as you said, uh, to consider Jesus ever turning someone away from 
a cup of juice and a piece of bread. Like yeah. it's, it's impossible to reconcile with the example of Jesus. And there are all these theological arguments that we both know that people get into about why we should exclude certain people. But I think that the church is supposed to be this microcosm of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is the place where every nation, tribe, tongue, people, sexuality, gender, religion, background come together and stand humbly before our creator in awe. Um, and I just, I think that's the heart of the Christian faith. And I, I might be a little arrogant with this and saying, I think people that aren't centered on that radically inclusive version of God's desire for salvation are selling something short of what Jesus embodied. Yeah. That's really good. I think too, I think it's important that, you know, as we look at people who maybe aren't there yet to recognize that there is a journey, right. To recognize that, you know, they might be on that side of the spectrum, so to speak, but at one point you and I were there as well. I think that remembering that helps me at least to look, to look at them with a little bit more grace, just to remember, like, I see myself in that person. And if God can bring me here, (laughs) God can bring them there as well. Right. And just to comment on that part is um, I, the thing that shifted my faith when I was at Moody the most was coming to first John and really wrestling with what first John writes when he says, uh, whoever has fear does not know God Mm. for God is love and perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with judgment. Um, These are scriptures I heard so many times, but until I sat down and reflected on them and realized, and this is what I think, when I'm trying to bring people along, so to speak, um, I just want to keep bringing them back to that fundamental question that if God's nature is love, and we're told that the kind of love that God embodies expels all fear, and specifically fear that has to do with judgment, mm. then what does that mean for how we interact with people? What If you're afraid of gay people coming to the table, the very fact you have fear means that you're not acting from a place of God. Um, And I I just, I really, that's kind of my whole thing. If I have one message, it's whenever there's fear present, you know, God's not present. So lean into love and let love, whatever love requires of you, let it, let it happen. And it's going to be messy and unorganized and all of that. But if you're in love, if you're in the flow of love, you're in the flow of God. And I think, that's where we all have to end up. Absolutely. That's great. And I think that it, I think that kind of interpretation of that verse alone shows a real progression in kind of the way we understand theology. And uh, yeah. I wrote down a quote um, that you were said in chapter six, that many of us in church believe that we can embrace true inclusion while gripping tightly to traditional theology. And I'm utterly convinced that unless we rethink every aspect of our inherited theology, we will never be free to become the truly inclusive people that that God calls us to be. And as well, you know, kind of along these lines, would you say that kind of what that requires of us is to not to go from a place where maybe we see the Bible as more of a, a law book, you know, a rule book, it's a guidebook for life, to really kind of recognizing the fact that the way that people understood God throughout the Bible obviously evolved and it changed. Mm. People in the Old Testament obviously viewed God entirely differently than they did in the New Testament especially when we get to Jesus. And do you think that that's, as we enter into this, this world of inclusion, that, that we have to continue with that evolution, that we have to kind of step into those shoes of those people and continue uh, the dialogue of who God really is and uh, what God is really up to in the world? 
Yeah, totally. I'll say two things first. Um, this book is, uh, for those who might be listening that might not be on board with uh, the progressive side of things, like this book is specifically written for those that are already like LGBT inclusive, that are already um, engaged in racial justice and are asking the question, okay, now that we have this, what's next? Mm. Um, so if I was talking to a more traditional audience, uh, I'd I temper those words a little bit about how uh, we need to rethink all of our theology. But yeah. um, with that said, I definitely... Say, the, say your question again, so I make sure I get it. Yeah, so what I'm asking is, you know, do you think that we need to kind of join in um, the footsteps of the people in the Bible? Because, the, you know, the Old Testament writers, clearly they see God very differently than, you know, we see God in the New Testament. You know, God is seen as being very violent, very angry, all these different things. But when we get to Jesus, you know, you have a couple examples in your book where the disciples are like, let's call down fire from heaven on these people. You know, like they did it in the past. And Jesus is like, yeah, we're probably not going to do that because that's not really the yeah. way that God is. You know, so obviously they're having a rethinking, a re-understanding of the way that God works. So I guess my question is, is as we jump into this topic of inclusion, uh, do you think that we need to kind of approach God with the same kind of humility as we see in the Bible right. of understanding that maybe we don't have the best grasp on God and maybe we'd have to kind of join in and understanding that God is up to things in the world that we might have nothing, no idea about. Yeah. 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 I'll just say that my theology is completely based on um, also the fundamental belief that revelation is ongoing. It's continuing that God didn't stop speaking at the close of the canon. And that's really scary for a lot of Christians. Sure, um, sure. But I don't, I don't think you can view human history without believing that God is actively involved and revealing new knowledge, whether we acknowledge that knowledge as science and reason and like the things that have helped us have the amazing world we can live in today, mm. or uh, spiritual revelation, and I think both continue to happen. Um, and so I think you said it best, um, we need to have a posture of humility before God. We need to be able to look at the scripture, as you said, and see how God's revelation evolved and matured and expanded from Genesis to Revelation. Mm. And believe what Jesus said. My whole theology goes back to Jesus looking at his disciples before he's crucified and says, I have so much more to teach you, more than you can now bear. Therefore, I'm sending you the Spirit, and the Spirit will lead you into all truth. Yeah. Jesus tells the disciples there's more that they need to know, but they're not capable of understanding it right now. So the Spirit's job is to help them, when they're able to understand it, to perceive the bigness of what God is doing in the world. And I want to say that throughout history, I, I believe and I hope that our capability to understand what God is doing has continually grown. And as our capability to understand has grown, God has continued to reveal more and more. And that's why I think we change. Um, the church has historically been racist. The church has historically been anti-women. The church has historically been anti-LGBT. And yet, there have been these moments where people have felt convicted and compelled by the Spirit to say, wait, yes, you can justify all of this with a bunch of Hebrew Bible quotes. And we don't think this is what God is calling us to do anymore. Mm. And I think those moments are beautiful moments of an evidence that God is still speaking and God is still calling us forward towards this vision of a just and generous world for all people. Mm. That's really good. So let me ask you a question um, on behalf of maybe a couple of people who, um, a couple of my listeners who I've dialogued with on the side. Um, what would you say 
to a person who is uh, maybe they're working at a church, they're on staff in some capacity and quietly, as you experienced, even at Moody on the inside, you're kind of rethinking your own view on things, especially in terms of inclusion and LGBTQ and like the clobber passages. But, you know, that person stirs beneath a board who has kind of clearly shown that they're not willing to rethink any of that stuff. So the person feels called to the church for whatever reason they might have the people of the church. And that person feels strongly that the board or the denomination, whatever is wrong, but they need to be careful of what they say. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the church does provide the, the the paycheck. So kind of, do you have any advice for that person who's maybe kind of wrestling through these things, but yet in the context where at this moment, they're not really allowed to uh, be super vocal about it? Yeah. Yeah. I have two pieces of advice. I think one that they're going to like and one that they're not going to like. Uh, <laughs> sure. One is, yes, I think there's such an important role. And I know so many people just like that better in these masks influential churches and they're LGBT inclusive and they're trying to figure out what to do and what their calling I think is is to do their best to be a little bit of an agitator to use maybe not necessarily publicly but to provoke people in power around them in their organization in their church to at least enter into the dialogue um, I think one of the most important things they can do is encourage leaders within their church to they don't have to talk about theology at all but to interact with gay people or lgbt people in their community in their church um if they can help those things happen um, they will be agents for change um, maybe not immediately but i firmly believe that when you um, if we can get conservative pastors or non-affirming pastors to sit and listen to the stories, the experience, and the faith of LGBT people, I think we shift hearts and minds. So I would encourage them to try to be subtle agitators. And um, I would say, I think that's actually a calling. Mm. And the other part of it is there is, there may come a point, there likely will come a point where it's important for a number of reasons. One, an integrity reason um, to, be able to speak up and say, I'm part of something that's doing harm and I can't stay silent about that. And that might cost, that might be a sacrifice. And that's what it means to follow Christ. And so I, I there's another call to people that are in non-affirming churches that are there because they have influence and I know the paychecks are great. And it's really important, especially for allies to be willing to make a sacrifice on behalf of any marginalized community. Um, and so there might come a point where it's important for a person to go public and say, listen, our church is not inclusive. I think this is harmful. I think it goes against the gospel. And raising their voice, they rec recognize that they're going to lose their job. But that also, in their sacrifice, they also put a spotlight on this topic in the church and yeah. they create an opportunity for the church to dialogue. So I want to encourage people to consider prayerfully the sacrifice that they might have to make um, because I think that's what our faith requires of us. And if they're not ready to make that sacrifice yet, at least uh, to be finding community outside the church for sure to sustain them and uh, help them have camaraderie with people that are on the same page with them. But while they're within the church to view it as a mission, to go about trying to cultivate conversation and create opportunities where growth and change could potentially happen. Mm, that's really good. I love what you said too about 
maybe those individuals being um, agents of change within their community by encouraging leadership in some way, shape, or form to, you know, spend time with an LGBTQ person. Because I think that was the biggest thing for me is that when I was in that Reformed church, uh, there were no gay people at all or anybody who was LGBTQ who ever came to that church. And, you know, the people who were on leadership never spent time with anybody in that community. And I think that, you know, when you close yourself off to a whole another person or a whole another community of people, I think that's what creates and generates the fear that we were talking about earlier. And when I left the church and I went to work at Apple, um, which is where I work now, I've been there for nine years. I think what my thinking really started to change is because I, I was working with, a, I work with a lot of people who are gay, uh, transgender, and I've met people and developed really close friendships with these people. And I was talking to somebody at work the other day, we were talking about this topic and I said to him, and he was on the same page as me. I said, you know, there was a day when maybe like five years into it, I was thinking to myself, like something is not right with my theology because like some of these people are the nicest people I've ever met who would literally give you the shirt off their back, do anything for you. They are more Christ-like than a lot of people I've ever met in the church. And if my theology says that God doesn't like those people for whatever reason, and that perhaps they're even hurtling towards hell in their life, like something's wrong. And I had to rethink exactly what's yeah. going on here. And I think that when you build those relationships with people, um, I think that's when you start to really rethink things and start to say, something isn't right. I've got to go back to the drawing board and think this through a little bit. Totally. I always, what changed my theology in Bible college, the little phrase that became clear to me was when my theology and my reality clash, you have to, if you're going to be um, authentic and have a degree of integrity, you have to choose reality and be willing to rethink your theology. Theology should describe what what's real in the world. And um, like you said, not just LGBT people, but all people that the church uh, scapegoats we're called, if you're in relationship with them, it's really difficult to demonize from up close. Um, and you really begin to see that the people that you once thought were your enemies are actually your siblings and you actually share a lot more in common. Mm. And I firmly believe, especially in this moment of our nation's history, that unless we can come, as cheesy as it sounds, come to the table with the people that we're most afraid of or that we disagree with the most, that we literally can't change anything. There will be no progress for good. Um, so yeah, being in relationship is yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, last question for you. Um, in the book, you talk about the phrase, take up your cross. And I think this is kind of a good segue to this. Uh, taking up your cross, I'm sure you've experienced, has been a, I think an abused term over the years. Um, I think yeah. it's come to mean a lot of different things. But in your book, you, you have an interesting take. Uh, you say, this is what it means to be willing to take up the cross, to be willing to name our privilege, uh, willing to set aside um, and to feel and walk alongside the oppression and the suffering of others, willing to carry the burden of solidarity with them, and willing to destroy it through our own self-sacrifice. Um, inclusion, as you talk about in your book, is is more than just LGBTQ inclusion. It's, you know, it's race, it's gender, it's, it's everyone and everywhere, um, including them into the uh, family of God. So can you give us maybe some practical examples of what does it look like both in and outside of the church for someone to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and take up his cross in the way that you defined it there? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, 
basically what we what we said earlier was about those people like if you're in a church that's not inclusive taking up the cross that's what it means it means to say listen i realize if you're a straight person in a church and you're convicted about lgbt people you realize that you're safe that you have a great paycheck that there's nothing that's ever going to threaten your job Mm. based on who you are and if you truly have a burden for LGBT people, or whether it's you're in a church that doesn't include women in leadership, or um, there are lots of churches that are uh, insidiously racist, um, if you're not willing to name that and to sacrifice privilege, which literally, again, like one of the most important passages in scripture for me is what's known as the kenosis passage, which talks about Jesus being the very form of God, not taking advantage of his equality with God but giving it up and sacrificing it. And if we say we're followers of Jesus, that means we need to look in our churches, in our spheres of influence, in our social groups, and say, who is being marginalized? Who is being treated unfairly? Who is not being welcomed in their full personhood? And how can I use what privilege and power and position I have to help change that for them and that often again means sometimes sacrificing a paycheck and putting you and maybe your family in a scary place for a little while Mm. and as crazy as that sounds and i know it sounds crazy i just can't help but feel like that's what jesus was talking about when he's saying this road is narrow and there are few that find it but when you go down it it leads to abundant life Mm. Um, the other thing i would say is And I would recommend um, at the end of the book, my favorite part of True Inclusion, there are uh, Appendix 1, there are 10 suggested actions for making inclusion real in your context. And I'm just basically going to read them because I think it's the best part of the book. Yeah. Um, One of the other key things that I learned is giving the voiceless back their voice instead of being a voice for the voiceless. Mm. Um, If you're in a non-inclusive environment, whether that's a church or a company or a community organization, Stop talking about whatever uh, marginalized people you're talking about and invite the marginalized people to speak on their own behalf. Um, Mm -hmm. It's never helpful to, in a church context, I know this, to have a bunch of straight evangelical pastors sitting around talking about the gays. It's far more impactful when you have an LGBT person step into that space and share our perspective. um, Mm -hmm. And that's where transformation really does happen. Uh, Let me look, Mm. put your money where your activism is. That's that same sacrificial thing that we were talking about. Um, I'll go here. The last thing I'll say is lots of people get really convicted and compelled about one group of people. So I know lots of amazing activists that are all about LGBT inclusion. But one of the key themes in the book and one of the key themes of our moments in American history is we're really awakening to the reality of this thing called intersectionality, which just means that we understand that all oppression is linked to each other. So if LGBT people are oppressed, our oppression is tied to the oppression of people of color and people of color's oppression is tied to the oppression of people with disabilities. And what that looks like is if you just advocate for LGBT inclusion, great. But what about the trans, black, uh, disabled individual? 
So you've advocated for one part of their inclusion, but they still aren't included because mm -hmm. all of these other systemic um, oppressions are still forcing them outside of the embrace of your organization, your church. So when we're engaged in activism, it's just really important. And this is even a word for people like me who devote a lot of time to one particular group of activism. Mm. Um, we always need to be mindful to look around and say, great, in your church, it's LGBT people that you're really passionate about, but what are the other groups and how do you at the same time use your privilege and power to be uh, uplifting the voices and making sacrifices and fighting for equal place at the table for mm. All oppressed groups and I think that's what true inclusion is really about it's understanding this work is never done and it is the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Christ it's reaching to those that the institutions have pushed to the side and saying you are welcome here you are valuable and you are loved by God mm. um, so yeah that's good when you say that all oppression is linked um, do you do you think that all oppression shares the same link and then it's generated from the same place. Um, and that maybe we need to recognize, like you said, that, you know, there's more than just LGBTQ oppression. There's also racial and other things. Does it all originate from that same place? And we have to kind of go after that place. Um, is that, is that what you're saying? Yes and no. Um, in my next book that's coming out, I really explored this theme where, for a long time, and this is the argument I make in the book, but I disagree with it a little bit, is um, <laughs> that patriarchy is the, the system that oppresses. So ancient patriarchy was fundamentally um, about oppressing women, oppressing uh, people of lower socioeconomic classes, and oppressing men or um, people that didn't fit what a real man looked like in their mm -hmm. society. And so you have these three pillars of oppression that helps keep patriarchy running. And I believe patriarchy is still one of the leading forces of oppression in our culture today. Um, but it's not, it's, I think the reality is, um, while that's true, it's not quite as simple as attacking patriarchy and then everything gets better. Mm. Um, because there is just so much systemic oppression. Um, there are so many groups, depending on where you're at, what your cultural context is, um, there are different forms of oppression that manifest and there are different oppressors. And so I think um, on one hand, looking at patriarchy is important, but the other hand is just looking around your community and your context and, and getting to know people mm. and seeing the people that are being excluded and what the people that are being excluded in Charlotte, North Carolina, are likely going to look a little bit different than what's happening here in San Diego, California. And sure. we just have to be mindful of our context and really look for all the different ways, the unexpected ways that people in power might be pushing other people to the side. Um, and just to give a clear example of that, that's like the LGBT community has for a long time um, ignored racial justice. And mm -hmm. there's uh, been a lot of LGBT uh, leaders that are white supremacists, essentially. And mm -hmm. that's, that's, we've been okay with that in the past because, hey, they're fighting for gay rights. But unless the LGBT community woke up and said, oh, wow, uh, this is a problem for us, just because we're a oppressed group doesn't mean we're not oppressing other groups. Um, if we didn't uh, go through that process of self-awareness, 
and not all of us have, uh, mm-hmm. then we would just continue to be a force for oppression. So mm-hmm. anyways, <laughs> that's really good. I like that. And I think too, you know, going off what you said, I think back to that verse, perfect love drives out fear. If, if perfect love drives out fear, then maybe loving the one that we're afraid of with intentionality will help us become less fearful of that person and more open. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That's really good. Hey, well, we're just about um, out of time. I could pick your brain all day, uh, but I don't want to keep you. But uh, before we end, where can people go online to uh, maybe find you, maybe upcoming projects you're working on? Anything you want to make people aware of other than your new book you just mentioned? Yeah, literally anywhere. I spend way too much time online. But uh, <laughs> Brandon Brandon Robertson, if you uh, if you honestly just threw that into Google, um, B-R-A-N-D-A-N Robertson, um, I have a website that has uh, speaking and books and all of that. And then Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, I spend most of my day on. So you can find me there anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brandon. It's been nice talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Talk to you soon. Peace. Bye. Man, that was some good stuff, wasn't it? Uh, so many good things to think about. And um, I don't know about you, but I was just really challenged. Um, and I've been challenged in this season of my life, really. I mean, the last eight months, I've talked a lot on this uh, podcast about what it means to be inclusive and what it means to expand Jesus's table. That's language I use a lot is about Jesus's table and what it looks like to expand that table, make it larger, uh, make room for every single person in the universe, regardless of um, their race, their religion, um, their color of their skin, um, their nationality, their sexuality, their gender, um, whether we like them, we don't like them, whatever. Um, I've really been challenging myself with that, and I think I'm hopefully challenging um, our listeners as well. And um, I certainly don't get it right every time. Uh, I probably get it wrong more times than I get it right. Uh, but I am trying. And this is something that's really um, become a real passion point for me in my life um, as I try to grow closer to God, closer to Jesus, and become more um, like Him. So um, I hope that this episode has encouraged you. I hope my talk with Brandon has inspired you uh, to be more inclusive in your own life. And um, thank you so much for dropping by. And uh, like I said earlier, next week we'll jump into a three-part series uh, called Thoughts from the Doctor. And I'll share with you, starting off, uh, a little bit about why I got my doctorate um, over these last three years. So uh, come back for that. And uh, if you you haven't already, also, you can drop by our Patreon page, patreon.com slash whatifproject. I'm not really too good yet at remembering to share that. Um, in the podcast. I probably should have done it earlier, but I'm doing it now. Uh, Patreon is a place where you can go to support people that create stuff uh, like me, uh, people that do podcasts, blogs, um, different things like that. And uh, you can share some of your of your money there um, to help keep, keep the show alive and keep it going. Uh, the money that comes in is actually going into a uh, virtual pot of sorts that I'm going to be using to pay the hosting fees for the blog 
uh, the website, the podcast, stuff like that. Didn't realize off the bat that those things cost as much money as they do. So uh, the money that comes in from Patreon will kind of help uh, cut the cost of that. So uh, kind of keep the show up and running, keep the lights on here at the What If uh, Project. And uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for. So the lowest tier is like $3. Highest tier is $30. And there are uh, various rewards for you depending on what tier that you sign up for. You can also uh, choose your own uh, tier and choose your own you know amount of money that you want to give every month. So if you're able to, to do that, uh, that would be much appreciated. We have nine people who are uh, patrons. And uh, thank you so much to the, the nine of you. Um, I love you. I appreciate you. I am thankful for you and your encouragement and for believing in what we are doing here at The What If Project. So all that to say, have a fantastic week, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.